0: This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, where we explore topics of interest to people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. The hello. Thank you once again for spending some of your valuable time listening to this podcast. I'm grateful that you would do that, and I hope you find something valuable from this experience and that it helps you along your way of recovery. Today's episode is taken from the Smart Talk series that we post on our YouTube channel every week that focuses on the people and tools of smart recovery. This episode features a conversation with the founding president of Smart Recovery, Joe Gerstein. Here, Joe gives a brief introduction to Smart and talks about its history and how he developed the Hierarchy of Values tool. Joining me in the conversation is my Smart Talk co-host, Arthur Shanker. Arthur is a Smart Meeting Facilitator who also works as the National Outreach Liaison for Smart Recovery. But before we get started, I would like to thank our sponsor Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Silverlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategy for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery, that you can find at SoberLink.com slash BBS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety podcast when ordering SoberLink and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now, episode 251, Smart Talk with Joe Gerstein.
1: Let me start with a little um, descriptive material about SMART recovery, or as we call it in Massachusetts, SMART recovery. (laughs) It took me uh, 10 years to learn how to say SMART, but as you can see, I finally learned how to do it. And, uh, of course, it may have been imprudent for me to have run the first meeting in Massachusetts in the basement of Memorial Hall at Harvard. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, SMART is an acronym. Uh, It's a backwards acronym because we we first got the name and and, uh, trademarked it, and then we figured out self-management addiction recovery training. So it turned into a very nice acronym that well describes the program. And the program really has uh, two main precepts. One is the tools, which you've mentioned. There are 14 of them. We started off with only two, and uh, we just kept ratcheting it up. Now we have 14. There's a few others that, that facilitators have, have tried and seem to be effective, and, and maybe we will incorporate them in the next edition of our handbook. Incidentally, the handbook is in its third edition, and it's available in 17 languages. 17 languages, in case there's anybody listening who, uh, for whom English is not their first language. Um, uh, We're now working on Haitian, Creole, and Japanese. We'll get up to 20 pretty soon, I think. I think uh, the Russian manual is ready for publication now, and the Hebrew one is almost there under a grant from the Israeli government. Now, the two major precepts or concepts or elements of the Smart Recovery Program are, one, the tools, and two, support, mutual support. Um, when I started this, we talked about self-help groups mainly. Now the concept has morphed over to mutual aid groups, which is more descriptive of what goes on uh, at the uh, recovery meetings practically all recovery meetings, whether it's SMART or AA or NA or Refuge Recovery or Women's Sobriety, there's an element, a very important element, and some people think it's the most important element, group support um, of uh, peers. And uh, I also might mention, so I don't forget it, which I sometimes do, that we also have a support group called Family and Friends, which is also science-based, evidence-based. And uh, when the plague hit, we had about 140 uh, meetings, but uh, uh, obviously that's been truncated a bit. Um, many of them have gone online, but there are meetings available seven days a week uh, on online on our website, smartrecovery.org. Now, um, it's a science-based program. We said that for about 25 years. In the last five or six years, we've been able to say it's an evidence-based program. What's the difference? Because the difference is that uh, the, the, the basis of it is clearly cognitive behavioral psychology, motivational interviewing, stages of change, um, uh, motivational enhancement theory, and so forth. Well, well-established scientific principles of what can help people who are attempting to recover from addictions, um, but um uh, the evidence base comes from specific studies on smart recovery that demonstrate its efficacy. so uh we've got our bibliography now runs to over a hundred articles, many of them from peer-reviewed journals and uh, the program is endorsed by National Institute of Drug Abuse, National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, the U.S. and Canadian federal prison systems, uh, National Association of Drug Court Professionals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the governments of many countries. We're in, we host meetings in 32 countries now. So it's a very well-established program. Somebody maybe is listening and never heard of it say, what the hell, about recovery? Well, it's, we're there. If you go on the website of NIDA, the website of NIAAA, the website of SAMHSA and so forth, and you look under mutual aid groups or or other programs for uh, non-treatment programs for recovery, you'll generally see AA, NA, smart recovery now. Um, so so it's now in in the in the realm of well-established. Programs. We now have 17 employees. It's a nonprofit group, so our meetings are free. Uh, right now, we can't even pass the hat. Really? There's still about a thousand meetings that are going on on a local basis, but most of them have moved online now on Zoom. Uh, as happened with uh, AA and NA as well. Because the venues, I mean, as a nonprofit, most of our venues I are in mean, a place like New York City. We have to pay pay for a venue. But uh, in, in most places, I'd say 98% of our meetings are held in libraries, churches, synagogues, uh, hospitals, many in hospitals. In Massachusetts, I think we're in 24 hospitals host the uh, smart recovery meetings. Most of the main major teaching hospitals, as everybody knows, Boston is a a major uh, international uh, uh, medical uh, mecca, uh, if I can use that word. And uh, most of those hospitals have spot recovery, meaning many of them multiple. So uh, uh, also mental health hospitals and the the, uh, reputational study that U.S. News and World Report does every uh, two years. Uh, one of the things they do is they rate mental health hospitals. Well, it so happens that in that uh, of the seven top-rated mental health hospitals, five of them host smart recovery meetings, a total of 16 meetings. And one of them, the Mayo Clinic, regularly sends its meetings to, uh, sends its people to one of the three meetings in Rochester, Minnesota. And there's only one holdout. For some reason, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital doesn't have smart meetings. I think maybe there's some old resentment against uh, Albert Ellis who invented rational emotive behavior therapy which we uh, use some of the techniques in our program at any rate so that's the background and um, there's over 3000 meetings around the world now and it's very it's adaptable in culturally diverse settings we have a special handbook for Australian aboriginals it's in six muslim majority countries have the spot Recovery Program operating. What would you attribute
0: um, this growth to?
1: What? The growth, I guess, I hope it's efficacy. <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 people want, vote with their feet. And obviously, we, we've trained about 12,000 facilitators. We We require our facilitators to be trained because it's a science-based program. They have to have some idea about what the science is uh and and to how to incorporate that into a group uh meeting with lay people. And, yeah you really uh,
0: take a lot of care to make sure that the facilitator is ready uh to to operate that meeting.
1: Right, sure. I mean for a local meeting all they have to do is complete our facilitated training which takes about 20 hours of unscheduled time. It's a very sophisticated online um, audio-visual program that's rated very highly. Two-thirds of the people who are taking it are professionals, either certified or licensed professionals, and one-third roughly are peers. People usually have been successful in our program. A few of them may be family members, but most of them are uh, graduates. I'm the only untrained uh, facilitator because I've been doing it basically since 1990, and I, I never bought to take the facilitated training.
0: Would you mind giving us a little history lesson about SMART since you, since you were there? sure.
1: Okay. Well, the um, spot started out as rational recovery. A man named Jack Trimpey was a social worker. Um, uh, just couldn't get anywhere with the 12 steps. Eventually went to the REBT Institute in New York run by Albert Ellis and learned a REBT is one of the cognitive Uh, behavioral techniques and he learned that it helped him he stopped drinking Uh, he's still alive Uh, as far as I know never drank a drop since Uh, even though he told me at one time that he'd he'd driven drunk a hundred times he was smart enough to elude the police but um, uh, since then he's uh, been okay and um, uh, at one point uh, that's when I joined up I started the 13th meeting in the U.S. And um, I, I had after, after about the sixth meeting. I never intended to get deeply involved. I just had a lot of patients who just couldn't get with the program with uh, 12 steps. Either they didn't like it or it was ideological, uh, ideologically futile for them or well, they, they just didn't like the style or whatever, but one reason or another. And I tried to bludgeon them into going. That was, a <laughs> that was all that was available, but some of them just said, no, that's it. <laughs> and there was really nothing to do with them. They were pretty, Nobody wanted them. No psychiatrist didn't want to see them. And uh, outpatient uh, remuneration from insurance was practically nil at that time in 1990. Anyway, uh, I started my meeting uh, after inviting Jack Trimpy to Boston and got him on the, in the newspaper and on a radio show. And um, other, other people in the field just didn't seem interested. So I started a meeting and I, I really didn't have the time to be involved in facilitating meetings. I was extremely busy as uh, both a practicing physician and a teacher. And uh, but by the sixth meeting, because I didn't want to see it die, I said, this this program is going to change the world. Now, I didn't say that out loud. I just thought it, because if I said I'd probably be taken away to a mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there uh, were probably 10,000 or 20,000 AA and NA meetings around the world, and we were sitting there in the basement of Memorial Hall at Harvard, and uh, uh, and here was my uh, fantasy, really. Uh, what <laughs> it happened, and uh, I was right in predicting it. It's a very powerful methodology for some people, like AA and NA. It's not for everybody. Bill uh, Bill W. acknowledged that uh, very clearly. He said, "Hey, we don't have any monopoly on how to get it over." alcoholism, that's what he was I think taught. it would
0: be devastating if there, was, if, if there was an insistence that there was only one way to find recovery. Right, right <laughs> It yeah. would be terrible.
1: Yeah. So uh, now there's a fair number, but, I mean, they're uh, oriented along, uh, for instance, there's a life ring that's also a cognitive behavioral approach, and then you have refuge recovery and dharma recovery, which are sort of Buddhistic approaches, although they're not specifically religious necessarily. Um, but uh, we use meditative techniques too. They don't have any copyright on that, <laughs> um, and uh, because that's a science-based technique, I happen to train with Herb Benson, who was who's become the guru of meditation. Um, Herb uh, Herb worked first with the Hari Krishnas and um, did it at night at Harvard Medical School because he was afraid that people would see them coming and going. And uh, But he's now the uh, Goldenberg Professor of Medicine at Harvard. So guess what? He found out that meditation was a real thing uh, and uh, its own f- f- uh, physiologic re- responses. And we know now that it can produce more gray matter in certain areas of the brain. So it's a perfectly legitimate Um, scientifically based concept right um, uh, it was started and smart has always been a partnership between professionals and lay people and it still is although it started with I think the first board had nine professionals now I'm not an addiction specialist I'm a primary I was a primary care internist and um, pain management specialist but I I I did it on my own. I didn't. Uh, there was no training for paying management when I started it, and um, almost all the other people either social workers or psychologists or whatever. And two lay people, two peers. That was the first board. Now the board I think has like fifteen members, and only three of them are professionals. So, um, so it still is a partnership, and it, and it really has to be because we have to know as science changes, how to integrate that into our program, if something useful arises in the scientific uh, literature. Do
0: you see anything on the horizon that might be coming, a, a change that might be coming?
1: Well, I mean, meditation is now a major uh, element. I think uh, when I take a poll in meetings, about 60, uh, 60, 70% of people are using meditative techniques. So that's very positive. And of course, the um, introduction uh, and uh, now almost universality of medication-assisted treatment for opioid addiction is, um, is uh, taking the forefront. Smart Recovery has always had a policy that uh, uh, prescribed FDA-approved medications for the addiction or for co-occurring disorders, uh, we're totally congenial to. That's science. I mean, as, as everybody knows now, the FDA goes through a very grueling process before a drug gets on the market, has to demonstrate efficacy and very modest toxicity, In order to get into that realm, and and once they're in, uh, we don't have any problem as long as they're appropriately prescribed. And we leave that to the participant and his or her physician or prescriber.
2: I think it's important, Joe, to point out that as facilitators are in a facilitated meeting, that we are very careful not to basically say, here's what we think you should be taking. And, I, and you just touched on that. And I think maybe expand on that a little bit more because uh, we don't want anybody to get the wrong idea that we sit there and say, well, maybe you should be taking this or you should be taking this. Yeah. This, this between the doctor and this patient.
1: Well, we're clearly, we say clearly we're not doing therapy. Now, when I run a smart recovery meeting, I think people, a lot of people are aware I'm a physician, but I'm a smart recovery facilitator. I'm not, I'm not doing a treatment. Group And um, I'm using the spot recovery tools and applying them, helping people apply them to their own uh, situation. Um, in terms of uh, uh, advice, we don't give advice. Uh, we use a very important technique, maybe the most important discovery in the last 40 years in addiction is called motivational interviewing, where um the, uh, the participants or the, the facilitator, uh, when it's used in groups, it's, it's used, it's become standard now, <laughs> not just in addiction treatment, but in all of psychiatry and psychology. And it's even taught in medical schools now um, in order to help people um, uh, make decisions about whether to take drugs or something like that. So it's a, a tool for decision making. And it's a technique that we use in our meetings. We don't tell people what to do. We may make suggestions or give them options or suggest options and so forth. But uh, we don't say you ought to do this or you ought to do that or you ought to do what I did to get over my recovery. And uh, uh, and so it's a, a very important technique, and it's fundamental. It's part of the ethos, part of the DNA of uh, smart recovery.
2: And, 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 even though, and, and even though the um, motivational interviewing is not, you would not necessarily find that in our list of tools. Uh, we find that that is probably one of the best, as Joe said, techniques or tools we have to actually use. But there's one other thing that goes along with motivational interviewing. And, um, and I want Joe to touch on this, too. Because if you don't know the right questions to ask, you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> and and so it takes one other element. It's called either empathic, active, or reflective listening. Yeah, And that's part of the training also.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's very critical, to And there are certain steps that a facilitator should take when someone brings up an issue. Um, and one of them is, uh, Arthur points out, is uh, empathic and attentive listening uh, to what the person says. Make sure that you understand what they are looking for or what they're talking about and so forth, rather than just glibly assuming that you, you understand what they mean. Uh, words are are not always precise, and it's important to make sure that the, it's clear. and clarify. Um, I think I told our officer this. He's sick of hearing it already. But at one of, at one of our meetings, uh, we go around and start our meetings. We do what's called a checkup or a check-in, check-in. and people tell about what their problem is. It's brief. brief what their type of problem is. What what uh, they've done, what has been useful for them, what hasn't been useful, and then how their life has been going the last week or two. And then we move on to the next person, and we build a meeting based on what comes out in the check-in. And I was at a meeting, and everything was going smoothly. We got around to the sixth person. And he said, hey, what's this smart recovery all about? I don't- <laughs> this is my third meeting now. And uh, I've been to Jesus. two other different meetings. i don't got, what are you guys selling? What's God. the crooks of smart recovery. Well, I don't know why he was so Why <laughs> uh, He went to a third meeting if, if the other two meetings really didn't resonate with him. <laughs> there he was, and I, he put me on the spot. And I, I thought for maybe 20, 30 seconds, it felt like two minutes, but then I, here's what I came up with. The crooks of smart recovery. That's what he wanted to know. We want to help people clarify their thinking so they can make better decisions for themselves. We want to help people clarify their thinking so they can make better decisions for themselves. That's what it's all about. Now, obviously, if you have an addiction, you've been making bad decisions over and over and over again. And bad decisions come from unclear or irrational or unhelpful thinking. So that's where we want to go. And that's mainly what we talk about at our meetings.
2: Is you know, thinking- I think- I, I- I think it's really important to point out, if you don't mind uh, interjecting, that a lot of times when uh, I do meetings and, and, and Joe does meetings, and sometimes we do meetings together, we we kind of ask the people, "So you think that alcohol and drugs and other maladaptive behaviors are the problem?" Mm-hmm. And of course, almost everybody just says, "Yeah, that's the problem." And what we want to point out is, and it's exactly from the definition that Joe just gave, maybe that's not really the problem. The problem is, why do we make the choice to use them, is where the problem comes in. The like alcohol
1: is just a liquid in a bottle, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and uh, what Jack Kirby used to say is, no drink ever jumped off the table and poured itself down anyone's throat. So we understand the craving and the urges and all of that, but ultimately, you know, the decision is yours, whether you drink or drug or whatever you do. And uh, we we know that many people with severe addictions stop with with alcohol use disorder. It's about 30% of people do it on their own. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's common. The last study by the NIH on this randomly contacted 18,000 people to establish this effect. I think it's pretty clear. (laughs) contacted 18,000 people that your study is likely to be significant. So they found out that um, people who who, uh, who fit the criteria of alcohol use disorder, in those days it called it alcohol dependence, that is addiction, uh, and who... Hadn't had a drink for five years now. Um, 30% of them got there without any contact with the recovery system. And, and that's it. That's the reality. So people are able to figure it out. But obviously, it doesn't work for everyone. And it may have been their 20th attempt, but they, they did it. Yeah. So
0: I was hoping that we could maybe get into some of those tools, because of a lot of what you're talking about now I think corresponds with these tools that Kelly was asking about. Um, would you mind going through like uh, the hierarchy of values, for example? And I believe you came up with
1: that, didn't you? Yes, I did. In the middle of a meeting. <laughs> Don't ask me how. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that we imbibe, uh, in, mentally imbibe, and they just sit around in our hippocampus and, and. um and hibernate for many, many years. And one of them that was hibernating for me was Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, without going in depth into that, Abraham Maslow is a very famous psychologist who came up with this concept hierarchy of needs. So what is the hierarchy of needs? Well, uh, there, are, there are four essential, absolutely essential needs. Water, or liquids, uh, oxygen, We all need oxygen and uh, uh, protection from the elements uh, in in the temperate zone. Obviously, in the Amazon, you don't need a lot of protection from the elements, but certainly in Boston or uh, Illinois, Missouri, you do. So uh, those are the needs. Now, uh, Maslow also added other needs like uh, human relationship, uh, uh, career, uh, uh, career. the sex and things like that. Uh, but I, I was always a little dubious that those were needs because we have people like hermits who, who don't seem to need any relationship <laughs> or anything. But anyway, I kept that to myself. But it was in my right <laughs> campus. And uh, during a meeting, I had a man who was a lawyer, a retired lawyer, apparently well to do. And uh, he had a big problem with alcohol. He, he delineated uh, at each meeting, you know, all the problems he had with it. I won't go into details about it. But anyway, uh, for six consecutive meetings during the check-in, he said, well, I'm not sure I want to stop and so forth and so on. And many people are in this situation. We call it ambivalence. In, in uh, Greek, that means different directions. Multiple directions. Well, that's what uh, most people who come to a spot recovery meeting are ambivalent. A few are absolutely certain they want to stop and never do it again. But a lot of people say, well, maybe someday and so forth and so on. Um, I often ask people uh, who newly come to a meeting, how strong is your motivation? Zero to ten to stop drinking or drugging, whatever it is, period. And the average is seven and a half or eight it's not ten uh, no matter what what they reel off in terms of the catastrophes and negativities that have happened in their life they, they're still clinging to that hope that maybe they can drink a drug safely or whatever so um, so uh, at that point he was ambivalent and but by the sixth meeting or the fifth meeting I guess by the fifth meeting when he went through that again I could see the people in the group were uncomfortable. They were kind of twisting around their seats, rolling their eyes. And, you know, it was almost a a visual demonstration of what the hell is the matter with this guy? Why doesn't he commit to stopping? So I was afraid someone was going to say something, which we don't tell people to do. So it just sprung into my head. I I said, look, uh, would you mind if we do a hierarchy of values? Now, I don't know why it took me 15 or 18 years to figure that out, that, that values are an important element. A violation of your values is an important element in motivating you to stop drinking and drugging, but it didn't. And now at this moment, it sprung into my head. So I wrote on the whiteboard, hierarchy of values, one, two, three, four, five, six. So I said, go ahead. So he said, well, number one, wife. Number two, sisters, very close to his sisters, he had told us. They always lived in the same area, and and they were all in each other's house. They did everything together. Three, kids. He had two grown sons. Uh, Four, health. His doctor had told him his liver tests were abnormal. Five, trips to Italy. He loved trips to Italy. He went every year for two weeks. He loved it. Now, he had it all set up. He had all the reservations made. He canceled them and had to pay a penalty, 20% penalty, because what good is a trip to Italy if you can't have a glass of wine with dinner? Now, uh, I won't go on to several other reasons he had for coming to a spot recovery group, but I said, well, well, wait a minute. Where, Where does alcohol fit in here? He said alcohol isn't a value. He's a lawyer, after all. <laughs> I said, uh, well, what about access to alcohol? He said, no, I don't think so. Well, that's it. We just dropped it there, went on with the meeting. The next week, we went around, did the check-in, got to him. He said, I've decided to stop drinking. Now, what I had done when he when he argued with me that access to alcohol wasn't really of value I went down his list. I said, Well, what does your wife think about the outcome? She hates it, begs me to stop. How about your sisters? Ditto. How about your sons? Yeah. They 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 always arguing with me about it. How about your doctor? Well that's very clear. How about your favorite thing? Trip to Italy. He said, Yeah, I canceled the trip. So think about it. Uh, it's pretty obvious that access to alcohol trumps all his important, crucial values of his life. And there it was, staring him right in the face. He could not deny it. It was very graphic. It was on the whiteboard for everybody to see. How crazy and destructive was his persistence at wanting to the drink. Well, clearly, he got a lot out of it. He, he had a good time, and, made, and everybody else was in conflict with it. Everything else in his life that was important was, a, and I guess he had a week to mull that over. He said, "Okay, I get it. I can't deny it." So this is the amazing thing about hierarchy for value. Value telling you the punchline. I don't know if this lady is still listening, which is a mistake because the punchline comes when people don't realize what it's going to be. It's a, as, as one facilitator said to me, well, that's just a gimmick. I said, yeah, it's just a gimmick, but it's it's a positive gimmick. It's, I'm not a playing a joke on someone. I'm not doing a gotcha. This, this is their life. And this is so important, an insight that is so critical to them is to understand that all their cherished values are being corrupted by their addiction, and they've been ignoring it or denying it or eluding it. So that's it. Now, uh, in doing hundreds of these, almost no one. Now, here's the important thing. uh, If people are resolute about stopping, they put abstinence in there or sobriety right at the top because they know if that isn't achieved, everything else is going to fall apart again. But the ninety-eight percent of people never mentioned who are ambivalent. Now, if you if you do it on somebody who is a ten in motivation to stop, they will say number one, abstinence or sobriety or something like that. So uh it's a bit of a very powerful tool for us. I don't know why it took me so long to figure this out. It's it's evidence. It's so evident uh, in everything that we do, and in every definition of addiction, that you neglect your work, you neglect your family, you neglect this, you neglect that. You, uh, you, you you focus totally on getting the drug and using the drug and paying for the drug and and all the criminal activity that goes along with it. And yet, and yet somehow I didn't figure that out.
2: You know, and you know, and what's really significant too, is when. Joe was talking about that motivation and uh, wanting to make changes. And this person says seven and a half or eight, even nine. And if you do, and when you do a hierarchy of values with them, all of a sudden, their motivation is enhanced. When they really figure that out, when they see this, like a bell goes off and they, and they see that I remember doing one once with a, with with a lawyer, (laughs) funny enough. And, um, and he said that when his, his wife would work in the evenings, and he had his young kids at home. And he found it to be a time that he could drink because the wife wasn't there and the kids were asleep. They were young kids. I said, well, what would happen if those kids got sick in the middle of the night? Would you be capable of driving them to the hospital or doing something about that? And he said, I never thought about that. And that night, it was like an epiphany, like a bell went off. And I talked to him a year later, and never touched a drink again. It was like, It's just amazing how that reacts and how it builds that motivation to want to continue on that uh, good abstinence journey. And there's also times that when the people don't point it out, because when Joe said one or two percent of the people get that that alcohol came before everything else. And we've talked about the values when we get through and and I ask it a little bit differently, but same bottom line again uh, to get them to that same place. But once they once they realize that, then I say, well, what if we took and added sobriety or absence as their number one value? What happens to the other values? Well they stay intact. And I said, and if you don't have that sobriety or absence, what happens to those values? They're corrupted. That that that's when they can go by the wayside. So it's it's really to me one of the most motivationally inner, um, tools that I think the smart recovery has that Joe uh, yeah. yeah,
0: it seems. Yeah, I can see the value in that. So we're coming up on 45 minutes. Um, do you think maybe we should save the ABC tool for next week? Yeah, yeah that's uh,
1: that's complicated. Uh, complicated.
0: I would say so because there's a lot of different areas that you would be using that in. So let's save that for next week, Arthur. And we can go through that in, in a lot of detail. We might want to spend most of the episode next week on that. That sounds good to me. So yeah, you know, uh,
1: along that line, I think uh, about the sixth meeting I was running one of the participants checking in said gee you know this we use a uh, we the abcs is the tool that we use to demonstrate rebt irrational behavior so he said gee you know this abc thing it's it's starting to spread into my business life my home life but he looked kind of concerned so i said well you look kind of worried he said yeah well i thought it was just supposed to be for addictions said well any any problem with thinking more rationally in your business? He said, no. Any problem with thinking more rationally before you get into uh, arguments and so forth at home? He said, no. I said, well, okay, stop worrying about it. Uh,
0: Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I really, really appreciate it. It was a really interesting conversation and uh, I'm really grateful for you to take the time uh, to do this.
1: Okay, glad to do it.
0: And Arthur, as always, it's a pleasure. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the day when I drive across I-70 and visit you in San Louis, one of my favorite cities.